You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask, Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through uh, heartsandminds.com as well. Uh, But I really encourage you to check them out, especially if if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Uncommentary. Uh, You may notice that my voice is a little deeper than normal. I've been battling a sinus thing. Hopefully it's not serious, Uh, but I'm super country Batman today uh, with a much deeper, growlier, nasally sounding voice. But in spite of that, I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Robert Erickson uh, on the podcast today. He's the Kurt Mayer Chair in Holocaust Studies Emeritus and Professor of History at Pacific Lutheran University, author and editor of five books and more than 40 articles or book chapters. His entire work uh, is dealt with two major institutions in Germany during the Nazi period, churches and universities. I'm really uh, excited about what he's going to be talking about today. Retired in 2016. Well, good for you, man. I mean, that's awesome, but it doesn't really sound like you're all that retired yet. (laughs) Uh, First book, Theologians Under Hitler, uh, Gerhard Kittel, Paul Althus, and Emanuel Hirsch, published in 85. Uh, second book was Betrayal, German Churches, and the Holocaust, co-edited with Susanna Heschel of Dartmouth, 
Uh, most recent book, Complicity in the Holocaust, Churches and Universities in Nazi Germany, published in two, 2012. And then hopefully within the next 18 or so months, uh, Christians in Nazi Germany uh, from Cambridge, which is part of their short history series. Dr. Erickson has been a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, Memorial Museum, and the Lutheran Academy of Scholars at Harvard. Uh, research awards, uh, editor of a German journal. Man, that's that's something. I can't even pronounce the name of that. How do you say that? Uh, that one's called Kirchliche Zeitgeschichte. Oh, well, good night. It's that's why some, That's why I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's got some of those German consonants that are a little bit hard. That's right. <laughs> uh, as well as an online journal called the Contemporary Church History Quarterly, which I'll be looking up when we're done today. Uh, serves as chair of the Committee on Ethics, Religion, and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, Dr. Robert Erickson, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so that's all the professional stuff, or at least some of the professional stuff, certainly not all of it. Uh, who's, Rob, who's Robert Erickson, just the ordinary guy? <laughs> well, I think I have to answer yes to that. <laughs> 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 uh, you have hobbies, you have a family, you have, uh, you're sitting in your car, I understand. Uh, I'm actually sitting in my car for this podcast because I have a three and a half year old golden doodle puppy. <laughs> and, uh, when she wakes up and comes out of the bedroom, she'd be barking and interrupting our conversation. <laughs> I think, um, my wife and I have a condo in Palm Springs, a, uh, a wonderful opportunity that we took advantage of, uh, partly because she came to Palm Springs in her childhood quite a bit with her family, wow. and partly because the uh, crash in the stock market helped uh, lower prices for us when we were looking about 10 years ago. Gotcha. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm enjoying, I'm, I'm a Pacific Northwest guy. I was born and raised in western Washington, have lived almost my entire life there. Um, and now I'm getting away from some of that winter cold uh, <laughs> and enjoying the temperatures here in Palm Springs. That's awesome. So, um, I mean, I guess most Americans, at least uh, I'm in my mid-50s uh, in your uh, retirement age, uh, most Americans our age or older grew up with a working knowledge, at least, of uh, the Third Reich and Hitler and uh, the Holocaust. Um I'm, I'm concerned that of late that's not as widely known as it has been in years past. But even with the knowledge that we had, uh, I wasn't aware of the church's role or the role of so many churches and theologians and pastors uh, in support of Nazism until several years ago when I read a book by Erwin Lutzer, the name of which I don't remember now. Hitler's Cross maybe was the name of it, something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And he dealt with some of those issues there. Uh, but before that, I was really unaware that, that, that it had, and I guess it, I just never even thought about what would have happened to churches and theologians during that era, uh, whether they would have protested or anything like that. I just didn't have any awareness of it at all. Uh, at what point did this become a topic that you, that got your attention? And then at what point did this become an issue that's like, I need to study this for a long, long time? Uh, yeah, I appreciate that question because, uh, you asked me, you know, am I just a normal guy? Uh, what about my background? And probably the most important uh, starting point for me in all of these questions is that I was born into a 
family of Lutherans, uh, Norwegian Lutherans in this case, and uh, my father was a pastor okay. in western Washington. Uh, he born and raised in Chicago, uh, moved out to western Washington in 1934 and spent his career there for about 60 years as a pastor. Wow. Uh, and then uh, his two brothers, he had two brothers in the family, they were both Lutheran pastors. Uh, my grandmother, his mother, was an immigrant from Norway. In fact, all four of my grandparents were immigrants, two from Norway, two from Sweden. Wow. It was a sort of mixed, mixed marriage, as they would have called it then. And uh, so this grandmother in particular was part of a religious movement in Norway uh, started by Hans Nielsen Hauge. It was a sort of pietist movement where they made sure they had... Uh, sessions on Wednesday night where they did Bible study and uh, a pretty intense Christian faith. And uh, my grandmother managed to raise three sons, all of whom became Lutheran pastors. Wow. Her brother came from Norway a little bit later and was a Lutheran pastor, my great uncle Oscar. And then two of my brothers, I have four brothers, there were five uh, sons in my parents' family, and uh, two of my brothers became Lutheran pastors. So I was sort of born to it, you might say. Wow. And uh, that's that's an important starting point. And then to get into the German side of it, this is all, of course, Scandinavian background. But uh, when I was a teenager, I was introduced to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is back in the early 1960s. Okay. And when I, uh, of course, heard about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and began to read some of his works and you know understand his message and so forth, it was very clear that Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was an opponent of the Nazi regime mm -hmm. in Germany, and of course uh, became a German pastor and theologian. And in fact, uh, with his opposition, he was arrested, he was imprisoned for a couple of years, and then he was murdered or executed uh, just about three to four weeks before the Second World War came to an end. Right. Now that her heroic picture of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which which, by the way, I think is a very legitimate picture, uh, that he was heroic, that he was uh, a really committed Christian. He wrote important things. In fact, uh, there are about 16 volumes of Bonhoeffer works now available in English, oh, huge wow. books. And so he, you know, he, he wrote an awful lot. And um, he gave me the impression that uh, Christians would have been opponents of the Nazi regime. Mm. Then I studied German history, and I, I did a master's degree in German history. Uh, and in that process, I learned a lot about Nazi Germany, Nazi ideology, and so forth. And it was clear that um, the Nazi regime should have been, a, I mean, of course, the crimes of the Nazi regime. I, I did some first work on things like uh, concentration camps mm. and the tremendous mistreatment. And, and of course, ultimately, there's the story of the death camps and the murder of six million Jews and all of that. Um, and so I was fully aware of the crimes. I also learned that uh, Hitler had like an eighth grade education and that he was a very good politician. He was a very effective speaker and he managed to convince the German people to put him in office. And then he had a fascist dictatorship from 1933 to 45, I was aware of all of that, and and he launched World War II. Um, you know, Hitler is one of the great criminals. Like you said a moment ago, 
we all sort of learned that mm-hmm. about Nazi Germany, about the crimes of Nazi Germany, about Hitler's leadership. In fact, some would have said back in the day, demonic leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was aware of all of that. And I needed to, I decided I wanted to do a PhD and I proposed a topic for my PhD work to a professor at the London School of Economics who was very interesting to me and and important in the field I was looking at. Mm -hmm. And in that proposal, which goes back to 1970, actually I arrived in London in 71, uh, that was a proposal to study the two professions that most interested me at that time. One was clergy, Mm -hmm. um, uh, pastors and uh, theologians, and the other was uh, university professors, because by then I was hoping to be a university professor. And um, so I thought I would like to know how these two professions, professors and pastors mm-hmm. or theologians, would have responded to the Nazis. And in my proposal, I sort of assumed that um, even though it was dangerous to be an opponent to the Nazis, uh, that at least in their hearts, most professors who were the German university system was the best one in the world mm. up until uh, that period through the first third of the 20th century. They were highly educated. Uh, they were the leaders in many fields. I mean, we know Einstein and physics and all those kinds of things. Uh, he had to flee German, Germany, of course, because right. of his Jewishness. Uh, in any case, uh, I thought university professors, they maybe did kept their mouths shut, but they certainly would have opposed the Nazi regime and the ideology. And then I assumed from my knowledge of Bonhoeffer and my knowledge of the Christian tradition and my own sense of what my grandmother stood for and my father and my uncles and so forth, that that Christians would have been opposed to the crimes of the Nazi state, to the horrors of the Nazi state. And so I wanted to study uh, how they expressed their feelings, how they hid their feelings, how how they reacted. And uh, I then began my research. Now that's that's my starting point, and I have to add that I think it was pretty naive. Yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to say it sounds like you're coming to a pivot here that's not going to go in a great direction. There, there, is, there is a pivot, and and in fact, I would add something else, and that is that at that stage, uh, especially actually in the universities, university professors for a generation or so simply didn't look back at the Nazi period in any serious way unless they were looking at the SS mm-hmm. or the, the Nazi hierarchy and things like that. They did some good work on that, but they didn't look at themselves. They didn't mm-hmm. look at their own past. They didn't look at the uh, universities. And so nothing had been done, really. And in terms of Christians, even in Germany, there was an effort by the churches, both Catholic and Protestant, to say, well, we were always opponents of the Nazis. You know, it was it was a police state. You couldn't really say that, but we were always opponents. And what I discovered in my work, and then you named these three people that I focused on at first, uh, uh, Gerhard Kittel, Paul Althaus, and Emanuel Hirsch, and they became the substance of what finally came out in 1985 as this book, Theologians Under Hitler. Mm. What I discovered is that these three men, I selected them because they were each very important, well-known, internationally known theologians, and because they taught at three of the best universities in Germany, at least in the the elite universities mm-hmm. 
uh, one was at Tübingen, another at Erlangen, and another at Göttingen, that these high-profile professors, uh, what I discovered is that they were all three thoroughgoing Nazis. Wow. They, they loved Hitler. In fact, uh, my wife has told me that she's never heard give, me give a talk without using this one quote, and I'll give it to you now. And it's from Paul Althaus. Paul Althaus at Erlangen University was almost certainly the most important Luther scholar in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. He was the president of the International Lutheran, Luther Society, Martin Luther Society. Um, and Paul Althaus in 1933, when Hitler came to power, said, he wrote, we Christians greet the rise of Hitler as a gift and miracle from God. Wow. Now, that just blew me away. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I repeat it all the time. And even if my wife is a little bit critical that I don't find new material. <laughs> then, there's, then, there's, uh, then there's this guy, Gerhard Kittel. Now, he's, he's the first one I dealt with. And in fact, I, I published an article on Kittel back in 1977. So I, I broke into the field. I hadn't finished my PhD yet, but I broke into the field by describing this man, and by the way, he is still a household name among many pastors because he's the founding editor of something called the Theological Dictionary to the New Testament. Yeah, I, I own it. This, this, you own it, I okay. Own it, yeah. So I don't have to convince you. Yeah. This is an incredibly important uh, reference work. It's you know started in German. It's available in English. It's used uh, all around the world by Christian pastors mm -hmm. in preparing sermons and so forth. And Gerhard Kittel at Tübingen University was this very famous professor, this very important Christian leader, the founding editor of that uh, reference work, and internationally known. For example, he was constantly invited abroad. He, he lectured at Cambridge University, for example, and he he traveled elsewhere because he was this international star wow. of, of Protestant theology. And he's the most incredible anti-Semite you can imagine. Now, the first thing I discovered, in fact, I said I worked first on Kittlemore, and in June, in May of 1933, this was just a few months after uh, Hitler came to power in January, January 30th of 1933, uh, Kittle did join the Nazi party right away. And then he gave a lecture in Tübingen, which became uh, also a published work and essentially the content of his work for the next 12 years. It was called Die Judenfrage, or The Jewish Question. Mm. And, and in that book, he gave complete support to Hitler's persecution of Jews. The, he recommended that Jews should have their citizenship taken away because they were such a danger to Germany. Wow. He feared that, that Jews were out to destroy Germany. There's something called uh, the Protocols of the mm -hmm. Elders of Zion, yeah. which is a, a tremendous uh, attack on Jews that was forged by the Russian secret police back around the turn of the last century. And it's used by anti-Semites mm -hmm. to this day to argue that there's a conspiracy of Jews to take over the world. Yeah. And, and Kittel was saying that sort of thing in uh, May and June of 1933 when he gave this lecture and then it was published. And uh, you have to remember that there were 
like 500,000 Jews living in Germany in a 60 million population. They were less than 1% of the population. Wow, but they were responsible and, for all and, the problems. And they're responsible for the problems. And so Kittle said, take away their citizenship, um, take away their jobs. We cannot possibly have Jews in important positions like university professors, school teachers, police, leaders of big business corporations, journalists, uh, authors, writers, uh, all of these positions, the police, all of these positions, Jews who are employed should have their jobs taken away. Wow. Uh, by taking away their citizenship, it would be possible to violate what would otherwise be their rights as German citizens. And he said to the Christians reading, you know, listening to him and then reading his book, uh, Christians are just the sort of people who might feel sorry for these people who through no fault of their own, he said, many of these will be upstanding Jews, but it's their Jewishness that is the threat. And so Christians will think, oh, my poor neighbor, you know, this is really too bad. And uh, Kittle then said, God does not, not ask us to be sentimental or soft. He asks us to see the problems as difficult as they are and treat them as harshly as necessary. My goodness. Now, <laughs> so, uh, you know, when you when I say that I was naive when I began yeah. approaching this topic, I certainly didn't find expect to find someone either like Paul Althaus, uh, that uh, Hitler's a gift from God mm-hmm. and a miracle, uh, and Kittle, who is on this incredible anti-Semitic rant. Now... Even let me, worse let me, uh, let me uh, <clears throat> go ahead. Let me ask sure. you this question. Uh, yeah. So Kittle, uh, Kittle was a committed Nazi. Um, yeah. Were his writings? Uh, did his writings influence people like uh, Goebbels and um, Goering, or did they use his writings to help influence others? Or do we know? Um, Kittle's greatest hope was that he would be influencing people like Goebbels and okay. Himmler. Uh, he wanted. He described himself, and by the way, uh, he spent the next 12 years working in a uh, sort of a Nazi think tank called the Research Section on the Jewish Question within a within an institute for the history of the New Germany, which meant Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And so, for 12 years, he is describing himself as the most important Christian uh, student of Judaism who can contribute this extra knowledge to the to the policies of the Nazi state. Good now, that night. was his goal. And, uh, and by the way, he was arrested in May of 1945 when the war came to an end. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was imprisoned for about 17 months. And, and then he died in 1947. So he had no post-war career, and he was badly humiliated. But in all of that, he wrote uh, two versions of a defense statement where he never admitted that he'd been mistaken. And he claimed that uh, all of this was, his, according to his Christian beliefs and his, uh, his knowledge, his deep knowledge of the Jewish people as well as the Christian tradition. Wow. Uh, it just blows my mind. Yeah. You listen to None Commentary. This is uh, Marty Duran talking to uh, Dr. Robert Erickson. Uh, and this is fascinating. So hang on, and uh, we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. Uh, and there's not a lot more. But nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. 
Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot. And uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. I'm back with Dr. Robert Erickson, who is blowing my mind apart with um, the history of the church in Nazi Germany and the theologians. Um, brother, just continue. Okay. Uh, I don't want to go on forever on this first book that I wrote, but <laughs> the third person uh, that I dealt with is a man named Emanuel Hirsch, and he was the Soren Kierkegaard expert for Germans in the first half of the 20th century. Now, Søren Kierkegaard is a very important Christian philosopher, mm -hmm. uh, the inventor of existentialism. Uh, he's used by both secular philosophers and by Christian theologians, uh, has been ever since uh, his mid-19th century career, and uh, a very important figure. And Emanuel Hirsch was the leader of existential theology and, and the study of Kierkegaard uh, from the 1920s through into, well, probably through the 1960s, uh, and therefore he wrote the standard two-volume textbook for Germans on Kierkegaard, a very bright man, and he too was a committed Nazi. Uh, he joined the Nazi party in 1932. He uh, voted for Hitler. He campaigned for Hitler. He tried to induce the church to adjust its theology for purposes of Hitler, um, in fact, uh, in, in what I think is the most egregious uh, error or sin on his part as a theologian, uh, he started pushing the idea that uh, Jesus probably wasn't really Jewish. Oh, mercy. Which, um, exactly, exactly. And, and of course, uh, one of the things, uh, there, there have been Jewish survivors who've told me they used to like to go to their Christian friends in Germany back in the day and say, well, that guy hanging on the cross there in your church, that guy you always talk about, wasn't he a Jew, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and and so some of the Christians, in fact, my, my good friend Susanna Heschel has written a book called The Aryan Jesus, and she tells this whole story about how theologians, especially in Germany, and especially, of course, in the Nazi period, uh, tried to establish an argument that this Jesus who we worship and follow is so wonderful he couldn't possibly be like one of these awful Jews. And so 
they tried to determine how he, they could describe his Aryan roots. So they turned him in into John case, Denver? I, pardon? They turned him into John Denver? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I didn't follow your your point, but absolutely. Uh, anyway, so in all three of the theologians I looked at, I discovered thoroughgoing support for the Nazi regime and the Nazi ideology and for Adolf Hitler. I published this book in 1985. That's 40 years after the collapse of the Nazi state. And it was just about the first thing that started blowing the lid on the question of what churches were really doing mm -hmm. in, in Germany between, you know, up to 1945, what their leaders were doing. And, um, since then, since 1985, I've continued working in this field, and there's been a lot of development. I mentioned my friend Susanna Heschel. Uh, there are several other friends of mine who are very important scholars in this field, both in Germany and in the United States. And the entire picture of Christians in that period has changed, so that instead of assuming that they were not, that they were anti-Nazi, uh, it's much closer to the truth, to assume that they were pro-Nazi. Wow. Uh, the Christian churches, both Catholic and Protestant, harbored people who liked the Nazi ideology, who liked Adolf Hitler. They were incredibly patriotic Germans. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I probably should talk a little bit now about the politics of Hitler and what he offered them. And, yeah, and think, why uh, they found it so exciting. Yeah, I think one of the, uh, one of the things that, that uh, I want you to, to cover in, in the, the way that you can do expertly is kind of this difference maybe between patriotism and some kind of a hyper-nationalism where yeah. it, it goes from just, you know, let's salute the flag and say the pledge and then watch the sporting event or cheer for your country in the Olympics to our country is right, come hell or high water, and we're going to kill anybody who disagrees with it. There's, there's got to be some kind of a de definition there, it seems to me, that uh, that where we cross a line and we're no longer just it's no longer for love of country it's now for love of some kind of an ideology that that suppresses others. Yes, I agree. And uh, and you know you're talking to a lifelong professor who uh, talked for 50 minutes to his students on a regular basis. So I'll try not to be too go too far back into this. But uh, the. The background to the rise of Hitler is really important, I think, because it describes a set of things that, a set of circumstances that really were very harsh for the German nation and mm -hmm. the German people. Um, you know, we, we often have in our own history times where we think, oh, this is terrible, this is the worst it is. And in fact, in some ways, uh, Donald Trump has suggested that uh, America has to be made great again because we've fallen into such a horrible crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Germany, first of all, they didn't actually fall into their crisis. They were one of the perpetrators of World War One. Right. Uh, there's a lot of nations that were involved in making that happen. But from 1914 to 1918, Germany was fighting against England, France, Russia. Russia got they beat Russia and pushed them out, and that's when the Russian Revolution happened. And, and then the United States joined up uh, in the last year or so of the war. And Germany and their ally Austria, oh, and Italy was also fighting against them. But Germany lost two million dead soldiers in World War I. Uh, but, and this is a population of 60 million people. Mm -hmm. So 
that's a, if you're going to, you know, if you, if you talked about America's politician today, or excuse me, population, mm-hmm. uh, that would be 10 or 12 million soldiers killed in, in one four year war, five, yeah. six year war. Uh, so it's just a huge number. And, uh, they also, they lost the war. So they got pushed around a lot. They lost territory. The, uh, treaty at the end of the war, the Versailles Treaty, it's called, took away their property, but also forced them to make uh, reparation payments. Right. They didn't make many of them and, you know, various economic crises intervened and so forth. But Germany's felt really pushed around and really beaten back and and really harmed uh, in ways that were unfair. They That was pretty widespread mm-hmm. uh, across the German public, you know, churches, certainly universities and so forth. Um, and, um, they also in 1919 created their first democratic government. It's called the Weimar Republic. So in effect, this was pretty much what Woodrow Wilson wanted them to do. Uh, you know, if you create a democratic government, then we'll treat you well Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll accept you into the community of nations. Well, uh, with democracy, and it was a really full-fledged democracy in the 1920s Germany. There was complete freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Uh, everyone had the right to vote. Women got the right to vote. Uh, Jews and other minorities, everyone had the right to vote and had the impact, had legal rights. And then they faced not only the humiliation of the loss of World War I, and the, uh, but economic conquests, Confrontations, excuse me. And finally, in 1929-1930, they were hit by the Great Depression the same way we were. And it got worse and worse with about half of the German population either being unemployed or unemployed. And finally, in January of 1933, Hitler came to power. Mm. Well, nobody expected Hitler to be successful in politics. Throughout the 1920s, they'd they'd formed the, the Nazi Party. They were considered a radical right-wing uh, racist organization, uh, completely against democracy. Uh, they wanted to have a strong leader. The word Führer is leader. So mm-hmm. Hitler became der Führer. And uh, they were preaching all of this very strong, like you said, worship of nation, mm-hmm. uh, worship of the German race, the German folk, they called it. And so there was all this idea of the purity of the German race, the superiority of the German race, they were the best people in the world, uh, that it was all racially based, that they were blonde and blue-eyed, which was not true of Hitler or Himmler, right. uh, or, uh, you know, uh, Goebbels especially. Uh, so there's some ironies here. But in any case, in the midst of that, there was a very strong anti-Semitism. Jews were uh, the danger, the, the anti-German uh, the racially corrupted people and so forth. And so Hitler was, um, the word we use in either political science or history is demagogue. Mm-hmm. Hitler used very powerful emotional messages that told people how great they were, but how dangerous people were who were not like them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's only the German Aryans who are okay. They deserve power. They deserve everything. They should be the great nation of the world, a thousand-year Reich. And um, that democracy, you couldn't allow democracy, things like a a free press or free speech, because that would weaken the nation. And so it was an attack on democracy. It was an attack on uh, 
based on ethno-nationalism. And uh, Hitler promised that if he came to power, he would be a strong enough leader. And I, I, I hate to use the phrase because it's just too easy, but his goal was to make Germany great again. Mm-hmm. And that's what he promised. But uh, the he was he came to power through democratic processes. He was appointed Chancellor of Germany in 1933. And then as soon as he was appointed, he began to beat back all of the democratic institutions, the institutions of the somewhat complicated German government, a little bit like ours with, a, in their case, a prime minister and a legislative body and a president and, uh, and the courts. And he, he was able to um, control all of them, bring them into line with the Nazi ideology and with Nazi leadership. He put all of his own people. It didn't take very long, really, but by the summer of 1933, and then especially um, the president of Germany at that time was uh, the old World War I general von Hindenburg, and when he died in August of 1934, it was the moment at which Hitler could say, you know, I'm, I'm chancellor or prime minister, but maybe I should be the president as well. Why would we need another president? And by acclamation, he was made uh, the complete uh, Führer wow. of Germany. And so we're looking at a dictatorship. Uh, he developed institutions of military force like the SS and, and the Gestapo as a police force. And he really, did, you know, there's no question but that Germany was a police state and the Nazi regime was in charge from 1933 through 1945. And uh, if people did cause trouble, they might be arrested, uh, thrown into prison, you know, locked up and thrown mm-hmm, away the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing is that, you know, we know that story, but the thing that I discovered, and which I now, you know, have confirmed, I think, and, and basically the scholarship all around me, uh, in German history and in German church history and so forth, all of that scholarship confirms that uh, most Germans liked what was happening if they were in the majority where they were the beneficiaries Mm -hmm. and only the minority groups, you know, the, the political outsiders like socialists or the political, the racial outsiders like uh, Sinti and Roma or gypsies, Mm -hmm. but of course Jews, uh, they're the ones who suffered. And for, you know, 80% of the German population, um, they're quite happy with what is going on. There's a guy named Peter Fritzsche, who's a historian, uh, and he, wrote a book called Germans into Nazis. And I've quoted him several times too, not quite as often as I quote Paul Althaus. <laughs> but uh, he once, he wrote that we must remember that Germans became Nazis because they wanted to become Nazis yeah. and because uh, Nazis offered them uh, what they felt they needed. So you described so, uh, you described Hitler coming to power as the Fuhrer. Uh, yeah. the the police state the control uh, is that a, is that what fascism is is that a description of fascism yes, it is. okay that is a description of fascism and uh, the nature of fascism is that it's a right wing dictatorship or a right wing um, uh, anti democratic very powerful government that rests upon national pride military strength, policing of the population, 
So to call it right wing means it doesn't believe in democracy. Mm. It doesn't believe that people need the democratic rights of the modern world uh, since the Enlightenment, you know, the kind of democratic rights written into the U.S. Constitution right. and things like that, that the world doesn't need that because we can't be strong enough if we don't have that martial, mm. militaristic, patriotic discipline um, following the leadership of one individual or a group of individuals who will keep us strong and tough. How did the now, uh, how did the average German Christian uh, did did they even use scripture at all to support uh, their their Nazi beliefs? Uh, was it warped and twisted in some way, or had it just become we're going to follow the hybrid of theology and uh, politics? Uh, to create and, and just live our lives with no true reference or knowledge or understanding of, of Scripture? Uh, was it ignored? Was it twisted? How in the world did they, how in the world did they get away from love thy neighbor to, uh, you know, exactly. burn thy neighbor, you know? Yeah, exactly. And let me, I've missed again, you know, I, I apologize for being a professor, but no, I'm going to back once again. Yeah. Uh, there are things that Christians have accepted for centuries. For example, war. Mm-hmm. And so there's a just theory of war within the Christian tradition Correct. that under certain circumstances, even nasty things like killing enemy soldiers are perfectly justified. Mm-hmm. Um, that just war tradition is part of that. Uh, Martin Luther, you know, my own Lutheran tradition, certainly wrote about that and talked about that. And so you... you begin to make these, um, I mean, that is a compromise with Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, sure. you know? And, uh, and so you, you take the realities of the world and you say, well, as Christians, uh, we understand that even God wants us to maintain a civil state and, you know, legal safety and things like that, uh, safety of our own borders. Uh, and so you make those compromises, and what what the Germans did, what the Christians did, is they accepted that the level of crisis that Germany had faced, the the problems they'd had after World War during and after World War One, uh, what they saw as the chaos, and uh, well, actually, they also saw a moral breakdown mm-hmm. in the 1920s. They had their own Roaring Twenties, and so uh, this might surprise you, but Hitler was the candidate of family values. Oh, boy. He promised that he would get rid of prostitution and pornography, and they actually did, except, of course, for the secret forms of the prostitution sure. they had for their own SS soldiers. And you know, so they they but they cleaned it off the streets. They also blamed it on the Jews. They said Jews are doing all this uh, publication of pornographic materials and stuff. And so, and in fact, uh, well. I, I could keep going on, but I was walking down a major boulevard in Germany just a couple of years ago. In fact, it was with my friend Susanna Heschel, and there were streetwalkers and uh, this Iranian Burgerstrasse. And uh, we started talking about it, and we realized, and in fact, I guess we might have even confirmed that with a German friend, but on this particular street, there had been streetwalkers in the 1920s. Uh, it was a you know den of vice and corruption. Mm-hmm. The Nazis came in, and there were no streetwalkers. They cleaned it up, and so the church is like that. They said, "Wonderful guy, he's doing the things we need for our Christian church, mm-hmm. our Christian culture." 
and and then actually the Soviet era, uh, the East German regime kept the prostitutes off the street, and only with Western capitalism, when Berlin was uh, brought back, you know, when Germany was mm-hmm. uh, united, <laughs> you started having prostitution wow. on the streets again. You know, it's an interesting uh, example yeah. of uh, of what churches might say. You know, church leaders might say, "Well, you know, we don't want those streetwalkers there. We don't. We don't want the pornography being sold on the street, even though democracy might say there's freedom of speech or mm-hmm. freedom of publication and so forth." So, um, you you started by asking me the question, "What about? Uh, were they reading the Bible? Were they using Bible verses? What? How did they preach?" You didn't put it, phrase it that way, but um, all of these guys I'm talking about, they continued to preach, and they preached this. Uh, there were various segments in the German Protestant Church. Uh, there was one group, about a third of the Protestant Church, that were called the Deutsche Christen. They waved the swastika. They were members of the Nazi Party. They wanted the they wanted to get rid of the Old Testament because it was Jewish. Oh mercy! So there were there were some really radical Christians on the Nazi side, and and none of the people I studied, you know, as as horribly as horrible as they seemed to me as pro-Nazis and, and anti-Semitic and so forth, none of them were really uh, members of that Deutsche Christen movement. Mm-hmm. I guess Emmanuel Hirsch was the closest to being a member. But in any case, uh, but they were all totally supportive of the Nazi state. And so, and they preached that. Now, um, what they did was to um, try to use passages and try to use concepts that made sense in terms of loyalty to your fellow citizens, mm-hmm. uh, love for your fellow citizens. And the thing that astonished me, you know, when I when I was doing all of this at first and, and tried to look back at a certain point and say, what went wrong? Um, it's obvious. You, you named it. Uh, how about loving your neighbor? Yeah. How about the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, and the do unto others as you would have them mm-hmm. do unto you. And the only thing that I can conclude, like say with this Gerhard Kittel, when he was told, love your neighbor, he was thinking, my neighbors are Germans, the German people, the yeah. German Aryans, the German citizens, and I've got to protect my community, my churches, my German people, my German nation, against people who would do us harm outsiders, immigrants, uh, people that aren't of our race, the people who don't have uh, the love of Germany beating in their hearts. And so somehow love your neighbor didn't become love your Jewish neighbor. Yeah. That just disappeared entirely. And and frankly, I think that uh, we're doing that in the United States right now. And uh, there are ways in which uh, you can have people who say they are Christian, who say they are followers of Jesus, and yet the harshness that they're willing to inflict upon upon refugees or people at the border or uh, people who are not white American citizens, you know, that is a conflict that we see in a really extreme form in Nazi Germany and with an extreme leader who said, just follow me and uh, we'll have a strong military, we'll have tough police, uh, we will throw bad guys in jail, and uh, we'll protect our racial purity. Uh, That's a really extreme version, but I think Christians, maybe throughout history, get tempted 
to take their status quo, the kind of culture they live in and that they like, and create a theological narrative or a Christian narrative that says this is okay. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you right there because that is like the best ending statement for this episode. I mean, that's the that's the conclusion that I want people to hear. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, this has been honestly. I know that you could have gone on for hours, and I could have listened to you go on for hours because this is just—it's so important. It's not just interesting; it's important. I've enjoyed this, as you can tell. Uh, these things are important to me, and I can talk about them a lot. I—I I feel very strongly, and uh, I can't quite believe that the Christian heritage that I grew up in can be perverted in this way. Uh, here, there, and everywhere. I hear you. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or Castbox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. 